Hello and welcome to the third Ambit Show with Soho Radio. Because it's summer and people are being pinged like locusts flying into a digital apocalypse, we're a few folk down and I'm playing some of my favourite spoken word tracks and sharing two interviews. But hold on, we've got Hip Hop Gold here and an interview with my golden mentor and Ambit guy, Bryony Bax who took to the helm of Ambit in 2013, enriching the pages with a wide diaspora of writers, poets and artists, aside a great team of editors. She's digitised submissions and turned Ambit into something that has egalitarianised us to be somewhere where we really can and do publish the best poets and writers of tomorrow. We keep the submission costs free or cheap and operate democratically to provide space to be published on good paper in our quarterly editions. But alas, a lot Briony Bax is leaving Ambit as editor and for the past year has been grooming me to take over, which is something I didn't know was entirely happening to begin with. Bit of a theme there if you're aware of my debut novel with Wrecking Ball Press called Psychomachia. But this interview with Bryony speaks to her as a poet rather than it being all about ambit, speaking about mental health and her lament collection published by Rough Trade Books, who also do a show here on Soho Radio. But what I've also done today is dig out a really ropey recording with the legend Abiyadan Oluwole, who I spoke with when I was editing the arts on DJ Mag, and his voice down the wire is too much not to share. So excuse the quality, but his voice is, is, you know, a legend, important voice in poetry. And if you're not aware of his name or sure who he is. He was one of the founders of The Last Poets, who ran the sounds of the revolution in Harlem in the 1960s. And The Last Poets is seen in my eyes and most music journalists as being the beginning of hip-hop, getting together on Malcolm X's birthday on May the 19th, 1968. And the track I play doesn't actually feature Abiodun, because he was in jail, and there's all kinds of stories there which we'll hear all about. He's great, so what a pleasure. So, my name's Kirsty Allison, I'm the incoming editor of Ambit Magazine, who first published my work in 2007, and I was incredibly stoked to join the rich fabric of Ambit, a publication I was aware had been publishing some of my favourite artists and writers since 1959 in a most psychedelic fashion. So, we're creating two editions through public submissions each year, which are selected by our editors and then we have two ambit pops being what the designer I work closely with Stephen Barrett describes as being ambit's younger sister the most recent guest edited by Leah Saudi who joined us for the debut podcast in the series and then the second ambit pop our 245th edition will feature winners of our competitions this year taking the theme of metamorphosis which drops in towards the end of this year And then our big news is that tomorrow night we're celebrating the 244th edition at London Fields Brewery with readings from those who haven't been pinged. And you can find details on our website and we'll be sharing it live with details also on ambitmagazine.co.uk where you can hear past podcasts and find out 
about our subscriptions, which are either £20 for digital or 30 for four quarterlies in print. And it's made for print. So if you can, it's good to feel the paper. Um, but you can also order collectible vintage editions as well as reading stories, art, reviews and more online there. So 244 is a very colourful edition, although we've returned to black and white with a Citroen paper insert for the inside design. On the website, you can also find links to past shows and do subscribe to us on your favourite podcast places on Apple, Spotify, Anchor, wherever. Right. But I thought I'd start today with some Ken Nordine. I first became acquainted with his colour work on the research label curated by William S. Burroughs, who used to send Ambit's founder, Dr. Martin Bax, postcards to his kitchen table. In the beginning. Oh, long before that. When light was deciding who should be in and who should be out of spectrum. Yellow was in trouble, even then. Seems that green, you know how green can be, didn't want yellow in. Some silly primal envy, I suppose, but for whatever cause, the effect was bad on yellow and caused yellow to weep yellow tears for several eternals before there were years until blue heard what was up between green and yellow and took green aside for a serious talk in which blue pointed out that if yellow and blue were to get together not that they would but if they did a gentle threat they could make their own green. Oh, said Green with some understanding. Naturally, by a sudden change of hue, Green saw the light and Yellow got in. Worked out fine. Yellow got lemons and Green got limes. So that was recorded back in 1966, but what I'm going to play to you now is a track called My Coffee by my good friend and collaborator, the great poet and rapper Malik Amir Crumpler, who you can hear on my own preview recordings of my own band called Vagrant Lovers. And he seems to have wiped himself off social media of late and is just making the words matter. But he assisted on production and rapping duties over on vagrantlovers.bandcamp.com. It's my project with Gilda Ray. And we're going on tour next week supporting Band of Holy Joy in Sheffield, Hull, Edinburgh and North Shields with London at the Powerhouse on October the 7th. So get your tickets for that if you fancy it. But Malik's an inspiration. He also wrote the foreword to my sold-out poetry book, Now's Now. And this is him working with some Brazilians, Daniel Belka, Paolo Bandau and Murillo O'Reilly. The album's called Those Humans. I mean, Malik has a wonderful disregard for language that's colonialized. So you can find everywhere Deaf Press and he works in Paris. Mm-hmm. 
My coffee, whose hair is a celestial cloud, whose thoughts are honest conceits, whose waist is an event horizon, whose waist is the waist of an elephant prostrating before a woolly mammoth, whose mouth is the dark matter between Andromeda and Singus A, whose teeth leave Clifford Steele streaks staining my enamel, whose tongue is Choctaw leather, whose tongue is jet fuel, the tongue of a sugarcane hoodoo doll with full-size phosphorescent fish eyes whose eyebrows are stovetop flames on low, my coffee, whose temples are humid juke joints in Arkansas with wise wood windows sweating moonshine, <laughs> my coffee, whose shoulders are Himalaya sweat, are streams that sing from jaguar pupils to condor wings over vivid valleys. My coffee, whose russet wrists have never known watches, whose fingers are maracas rattling in unison with my pulse, whose fingers are tobacco stems. My coffee, with armpits full of gorilla ears and Louisiana swap moths as old Titus sings them blues. Says old Titus sings them blues that are bunkers full of rusted weapons and underground hideouts for North Star chasers, whose arms are swamp gods and warrior ghosts desperately resisting the colonies, whose arms are smoky topaz lakes, whose legs are scorched constellations for the deceptive quest of any healing being, invisible or not. My coffee. My coffee. My coffee. My coffee. My coffee. Whose calves are stained with pinto bean blood and sorcerer sap. Whose feet are mud blood. Talk toenails made of chestnut eye children who swam in lava laughing. My coffee. My coffee. My coffee. Whose neck is amber bubbles disappearing on the stagnant surface. Whose throat is the keeper of valley gods. Initiating seekers in the cardboard brothel of Rhea each blood moon. My coffee. My coffee, whose chest is the garnet galaxy and full of Teratopsis Nutracula and sard codices of immortality. My coffee, whose torso is a laughing panther chewing wet planets, whose swollen stomach is a coconut cracking from inner lightning, is about to armor. My coffee with 
Ibis eyes helixing into the vortex with a back full of preserved lotus pods and peacock feathers fanning my coffee, whose sixth chakra is Labradorite and wet sand of steam that swirls through the fingers of someone who has just decided to lindy hop my coffee. That are strong as keels and all acceleration. My coffee, whose aft is astrology and horoscopes, whose aft is the dark side of Neptune in autumn. My coffee, whose morning sex conjures the morning star and adrenaline mind refusing restraint with the sex of baseball mitts from the 20s as that petite absent lady winks. My coffee with the sex of Ovid's lakes. My coffee with mosaic eyes full of Granada's gypsies doing duende dances and bubbling tar with eyes that are obsidian cloaks and Moorish magnets with eyes of Ixchel with eyes full of night skies drinking nebulas. My coffee with eyes that are not colonial classrooms critiquing colonial constructions. My coffee, no sugar, no milk, no nothing, just black. So you got to find that whole album if you look out for Malik Amir Crumpler wherever you can. Uh, more coming in the way of music, but first, here is Editor. Briny backs with myself, Kirsty Allison. Let me just talk a little bit about the origins of this pamphlet, and then I'll read some, and then we can talk, and then I'll read some, and then we'll talk because there are going to be things that come up. And I just do want to tell the listeners um, my pamphlet, Lament, published by Rough Trade Editions, is about mental health, and so I just want to tell everybody that there are some trigger warnings that will come up. So just be aware of that while I'm reading. And Lament really came about out of sheer rage after having been the carer of somebody who had to navigate the mental health system through the years of austerity and the whole PIP assessment system. And I was so enraged by the whole thing that I I wrote a long poem about that and took it to Nina Hervey at Rough Trade and said, look, I want to build a pamphlet around this. And I had had some some poems. Uh, there was a poem called Schizophrenia that w- had been published in Ambit magazine many, many years ago, about 15 years ago. But that was the sort of genesis of this. But it was all about basically a, a long lifetime that I've spent caring for somebody. This person is not ever named in anything and all, all places are changed uh, to protect protect their anonymity, so they're never um, identified in the pieces. Um, And it charts their journey um, through 
a psychotic breakdown and then what happens after that. So I'm going to start with the first poem in the pamphlet and it's called World War Three. World War Three. One minute you were dancing, then standing in court with your hands trembling, babbling to the judge about how you joined the SAS. You took one too many chances. Your deck of cards collapsed at 21. No vingt-et-un as you were dealt your hand. Your pocket ace was only a two. You lay in the single bed, helpless and curled, weeping, hair matted like a lost puppy, hands clamped over your ears to stop the voices. You never thought you'd be hunted, stalking the hallways with a kitchen knife, your dark eyes darting in the forest of headlights that dashed through the front window. You never felt you were safe. Listening devices were buried in the chimney stack. Signals from Radio 4 about the destruction of the world. Your Jesus hair smelt of roll-ups. You became part of the special forces. A helicopter landed in the sitting room. Soldiers streamed around the sofa holding guns. World War Three started in your kitchen. That's so great, Bryony. It's quite funny and tragic and brilliant. I just think it summarises all the experiences that we've all had with people close and suffering and... It's so I, I love this collection so much. I've bought four four of them to give to friends well, who are think, affected I think by the, it. The thing about psychosis, of course, is that for the person who's going through it, it is reality. And as much as you can say, no, it's not happening, it is happening to them. It is happening. So whatever they're seeing, whatever they're hearing, it is happening. And that's what I'm trying to to get across that in a way, who are we to judge what is reality and what isn't? And you have to treat it with respect. You have to treat psychosis with respect. Now, of course, psychosis can often lead to sectioning. And the next, the next poem's about that. It's called Christmas. To be sectioned, you have to hurt yourself or hurt someone else. When it comes, it is lucky. Bricks thrown at a bus, no one hurt. You are arrested. We are relieved. You stand in the dock weeping. The judge shakes his head, nothing we can do. Your town prison until after the holidays. Instead of mulled wine, Largactyl is forced into your veins by rough prison guards. I think you will die. It's Christmas, a bad time of year for you. No pudding in your cell, no presents under the tree, darkness at 3.30. As I pass through the locked doors, I try and smile. A cell is the wrong place for you. The social worker is away and the medical examiner cannot write the report until after the holidays. Without the report, nothing can be done. I phone and phone again. After 20 days in prison, you are moved to the locked ward at our town hospital. The social worker returns. 
Did you have a nice Christmas, he asks. I think I have a bit of a thing about Christmas and because it's always a very difficult time of year. Um, of course, it's going to be very difficult this year. I mean, this is a whole different year. But in the years that are normal, when everybody's celebrating Christmas and you have a friend who is in a locked ward who can't leave, it's a very different experience. So this is called Jesus Visits Secure Ward 1. No one can leave on Christmas Day. Relatives are invited for a mince pie tea. The duty nurse pours out cuppers. We sit in a circle around a wooden coffee table on which sits a nativity set, empty of characters. Only the manger and the stable wait. The vicar arrives, late, full of excuses. The traffic, the weather. He smiles at us, the forlorn. As crumbs of mince pie fall on the floor, he tells us the story of the first Christmas. One by one, he hands around the figures. First the family, Mary and Joseph, the wanderers, displaced from home, tired and upset, going into labor, forced to sleep in the shed with the animals. He hands me a donkey to place on the table. He hands you a cow to put beside it. The scene is being set. Then come the locals, the shepherds coming straight from work, cold and no doubt hungry. Enter the posh people, the kings with their gifts, strange how they would even come to be here. No matter how reluctant, no matter how ill, each one of us works to recreate the scene. Finally, the baby, the child that will change everything, a plastic figure on a clump of straw. There now, says the vicar, our Christmas scene is complete. Now we can sing away in a manger. As we sing, my voice stumbles. In this wreckage of broken beings, we try to act normally. I think of the other gatherings in the Christmas commercials all together by the glistening tree. At the end, the vicar takes my hand. I'm trying very hard not to cry. He hugs me, a huge bear hug. These are God's children, he whispers. Every one of them will have a special place in heaven to make up for this. I inspect the crib scene, straighten the tinsel on the roof, and fix the wonky star above it. The wonky star. It's so bizarre that they've even got a religious guy in such a confused situation about identity and the great messiah that's such a common trope in psychosis so it's so bizarre that they even impact that with more of it it's a strange logic it's kind of victorian yeah i mean i'm not a religious person at all and i think that but in some way it does give some comfort to the people are there and, and, and the mere task of having to focus on putting something on a table in a group actually sort of in, in that experience focused everybody in that moment. But, you know, these, it's very difficult. I really believe that everybody should go and volunteer or try and support somebody who has been through this because when you're on one of these wards... Anything can happen at any time. 
there's a tension in the air because normally something's going to happen. Somebody's going to go off, somebody's going to get upset, somebody's going to throw something. Um, and I think, I, think the, I think the difficulty is that the, when people are on these wards, they're trying to contain them, they're trying to keep them calm. You know, the nursing staff are absolutely fabulous at, at doing that. But the other problem is they're not really... The, the physical being of people, from my experience, is not really looked after so that there's a lot of sitting about and trying to find a place to smoke. Of course, now it's much more difficult. Um, this this book goes back to experiences in the in the in the 80s when when everybody smoked on the wards when you could smoke inside. And there's not much activity. There's not much. You know, there's no sort of at least then there was no sort of yoga or stretching or any uh, focus on the physical being. Um, it's all about containing. Um, now, hopefully things have changed now, but I'm writing from experience of what I have experienced firsthand. In. And talking of experience, the, the thing that got me really going was when the government was cutting everybody's personal independence payments. And I think I would really urge everybody to see the film I, Daniel Blake, because I think that captured it so beautifully by Mike Lee. Uh, I just the whole situation of sanctions and um, the indignity of of going having to get to certain places for certain appointments and how difficult it is if you are living on nothing to do that. So I went through this experience, and afterwards I was actually taking a class with um, I was writing um, with Helen Ivory, and for some reason I just sort of blurted this long poem out. And we played around with it for a while, trying to force it into different forms, because it's a prose poem. But it really didn't want to be contained, ironically. And so it is a, it, it, it's a long prose poem. And it's called Unlocking Value, or How the Government is Screwing the Mentally Ill. This is a poem for the voiceless, for the people you pass lying in doorways, for the man sheltering below the underpass, for the woman who sleeps covered with frost, for all those sanctioned, humiliated and homeless because they are mentally ill. 30th of January 2017, The Form. It comes in a brown, thick envelope addressed to you 20 pages from the Department of Work and Pensions and a company called Capita. I look at their website. Outsourcing is not just about saving time and money, and we're not just about outsourcing. We think differently and help our clients unlock value in a number of ways. I ask you the questions on the form and I write down your answers as your spider writing is illegible. Name, date of birth, all the usual stuff. Diagnosis, diabetes, you say. I write down paranoid schizophrenia and diabetes. Can you lift your hands above your head? Yes. Do you have trouble walking 10 meters? No. Do you have trouble walking 20 meters? I don't know. Do you have toilet accidents that wet your pants? No. 
If yes, how often do you need to change your pants? Never. Can you lift packages over one kilogram? Yes. Can you lift packages over five kilograms? What's five kilograms when it's at home? Can you shop for food? Yes. Can you prepare food? Yes. The catechism goes on for 20 pages. I have you sign it, date it, and I send it in the post. I write to my MP and the head of DWP. I suggest that all MPs be made to fill in the form as they too receive government monies. 3rd of March 2017, the assessment. The notice comes of your assessment, 9am in an industrial park in Fartown, 30 miles away with no bus route. If you miss your appointment, your PIP will automatically be stopped. I take a morning off work and take you in my car. The morning comes, I pick you up and make you bring the plastic box. The box with day compartments for your meds. The box you collect from the pharmacy once a week. Your leg twitches as we drive. The capita offices are modern and sleek. We sit in the lobby in this empty industrial park. I wonder how you would find it if I wasn't with you. Someone who can't use a smartphone, who can't read a text or send an email. We get called. The assessor is a nurse. Looking good, I think. She'll understand. I place the medicine tray on the desk. She looks at you. I see you could walk quite well. Yes. Your pills are given weekly, not monthly? Yes. Why? I don't know why. Can you do your own shopping? Yes. Where do you do your shopping? Morrison's. Do you walk there? Yes, it is behind my flat. Do you talk with anyone there? No. Tell me about your friends. I don't have any. Do you feel any anxiety? Yes, often. How does that affect your life? I don't know. All the time she's typing into a laptop. As a nurse, surely she can look at these medicines, these endless pills, and know they don't give clozapine to people who are well. Most people don't have to take 15 pills a day. At the end, she smiles. Thank you for coming today. We will give you our findings in a few weeks. If we find at that time that you do not qualify for PIP, your allowance will be stopped immediately. You may appeal, but your allowance will be stopped pending court action. 22nd of March, 2017, the notice. I dread these brown envelopes with capita and large letters. We regret to inform you, blah, 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 out of a possible 30 points you scored zero. Therefore, your independence, personal independence payments will be stopped immediately. £75 a week cut just like that. You may appeal online. What good is that? You don't have a computer. You don't have an email. You can't even read your own texts. On your behalf, I appeal online and we are given a court date. 9th of April 2017, the Disability Clinic, the Disability Charity. He was kind enough to see us in the crowded office of the marketplace. This hero with one arm and one leg who advocates for the disabled, saints are living among us. 
He's astounded at your story, indignation flaming from his mouth. I say I'm your appointed guardian. You say I kidnapped you. The hero writes a letter in support of our appeal. He says he will come to court on his day off, an angel in a mire of mud. 29th of May, 2017, Our Town County Court. There are three people behind the bench, a doctor, a judge and a disability advocate. They seem concerned as if they have seen this all before. Kindly they ask you questions, but first they say they are surprised to see you in court. They say that having seen your papers that they think you are entitled to PIP support. Their questions start. Do you go on holiday? Yes, all the time. I've been to Spain, France and Scotland. Do you work? Yes, I work all the time. I work in a shop, I work riding a motorbike, I work in a nightclub. Do you cook for yourself? Yes, I'm a good cook. Do your representatives have anything to add? Yes, I say. Number one, the holidays he's referring to happened pre-1983 when he was first sectioned and hospitalised. Number two, the jobs he's referring to were temporary and happened pre-1983 when he was first sectioned and hospitalised. Number three, this is the first time he has been living independently since he was 20 years old. At the age of 57, he is learning how to cook, clean and try and keep a tiny flat in order. His cooking extends to ready meals. In the last few months, he has had his personal allowance cut and his personal independence payments stopped. In the last few months, he has suffered extreme stress due to the assessment by Capita. In the last few months, I have been scared he will have to go back to a locked hospital ward. They look at us and shake their heads. They ask us to wait for their verdict. You bolt, run out of the building. I find you smoking on a park bench. That was rough, I say. You pull on your cigarette hard. It's good news, do you want to hear? 18 points, they gave you 18 points. Pip to be backdated to when it was cut. You don't respond, you are exhausted. I've heard that 30,000 people have been to court. I fear for the ones who don't have family the ones who will miss their assessment, the ones who can't fill in the forms, the ones who are sanctioned only to be found frozen dead on a street corner. So good, Bryony. Bryony backs. that's so, so powerful. I mean, for a collection of poetry, it's slimline. I don't know how many pages there are, but if you buy this... I think it's seven pounds. All the proceeds are going to mind, which makes me feel that's all we can do. And that's the tragedy of it. So it's such a reflection of our times in that way too. I think, um, I think I feel very much that there are many people who don't have a voice in this country that are completely disenfranchised. And, um, I remember once I was with a poet who suffers from mental illness and he told me once we were going into a station and he said, oh, I can point out the derelicts. And he had this word, the derelicts, for the people that he knew on the station who were dis disenfranchised. And I hope 
that by speaking out and telling these stories, which are very shocking to some people in this country, they don't understand what is happening, what is going on. Um, they haven't had to be gone go, go through this process. But if you have, it is unbelievable that we do not support people with mental illness. In the and, and mental illness is still seen as something lower than physical illness. It's still not accepted as an illness. I think it has changed dramatically, though. I mean, I, I do see people talking about emotions now and I think you know one of the great bonuses of lockdown has been that people have shared their struggle a little more it's been a great equalizer in many ways and I I once volunteered for mind and I was matched with this amazing old lady and it was unforgettable kind of how much I got out of that it wasn't about her at all it was all about me (laughs) and uh yeah and I I loved I loved going to see her. She gave me so much. Yeah, and there are funny moments too. I mean, there are funny things that happen. and um, It's hilarious. Have you seen the film Malcolm is a Little Unwell? Have you watched no, that? Oh, you must. No, yeah, it's about a journalist who has a messiah complex. I mean, he was working for the BBC, but he filmed his complete breakdown and wow. it's, it's really it's strong really and brilliant. I'd really like to see that. Yeah, it's I'd on really Amazon. Like see that. Yeah, I, I think you're right. I think people are talking about mental illness more. I think there are various campaigns and very public figures are talking about their own struggles, which I think is really, really helpful. And even, I mean, I think it, it, just the mere fact that we're talking about it is really good because whenever I read these poems afterwards, people want me, they pull me aside and say, oh my gosh, you know, my father was like that, my sister was like that, you know, everybody has these experiences, but we don't know about them because we don't speak about them because it is still something that's seen as private and um, people do struggle with it and struggle in silence and I think that the more that we can talk about it and, uh, you know, the internet actually is can be a really positive tool for that to bring people together to talk about it i think there's a lot of false optimism with that as well i think there's a lot of um okay cool samaritans don't talk to me i think that there is a bit of a virtue signaling about it occasionally and i don't think that's necessarily the best medicine yeah and uh, you know sometimes i mean uh, we've had this experience before we're trying to get help and there's the the sort of the talking therapy that you can you can get quite easily through the Samaritans or relate or that kind of thing, but then you know when it sort of slips over into something that's a lot more serious, that's when it's it's harder to and I mean of course the whole subject of sectioning is very controversial and is very difficult very very difficult to see someone being sectioned. But, uh, you know, it is sometimes necessary. I felt so bad for the people who were sectioned during lockdown too. Yeah. And just yeah, not understanding. I mean, and, and what psychosis must have been going around through snippets of information that are received mm-hmm. on the other side of, of those doors. And I did a reading a while ago at the Bomb Factory in, in North London. And... 
there was a guy who I've since found out is no longer with us and I might publish a collection that he's written, but he was telling me that he found the experience of being sectioned and being in a locked ward far more traumatic than the years that he'd spent both in the army and in prison. Mm. And, I mean, just the trauma of that experience is brutal and how people can recover from that once they've gone down that route i mean that's the and then all the problems with bouncing in and out of housing mm-hmm. yeah. it's it's so yeah, difficult. really tough really tough with the sort of halfway house situation and everybody is trying their best at those places to help to help but then if they if somebody slips off their medication and then goes off the rails again and have to go back into hospital and it is, I mean, I do think that things have changed a lot with people who are taking clozapine because that does seem to be a more humane, although it can have the side effects on the liver, you know, you have to get tested for it every month, but it does seem to um, help an awful lot of people. So these third generation drugs, have they've been huge advances. Mm. I mean, the whole thing about mental illness is it's so, it, it's so dating back to that Nobel Prize winner who discovered lobotomies. I mean, and that's where the basic the basic theory of it comes is that if you put some stakes through someone's eye and dislodge their their frontal cortex, that that's going to somehow cure them. So, I mean, that's, that's where the history of those, that treatment uh, comes from. But I mean, I wanted to ask you, you know, about more about kind of, I mean, you use poetry all the time to, to enable other people to free themselves, but kind of where you, feel society needs poetry in the same way and and the crossover with mental health I mean I find you know poetry is one of those fine arts in terms of recovery and kind of all the different elements of Mm. of getting over anything and kind of finding your voice and 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 living really it's difficult isn't it because you know, as as you and I, now we need to tell the audience that we work together. So we work together on Ambit Magazine and I've been um, editor of Ambit Magazine since 2013. And um, so a lot of the time we're reading other people's work that they're sending in. And a lot of the time it's people at the beginning of their poetry journey. And some of the time it is a bit what I call sort of therapy poetry. And I'm always... I always encourage people to write that therapy poetry and sort of get it out of the way and then write about what is really important to them once they've got what that that sort of out of the way and I think I think sometimes that's a process for a, for a poet is to is to write enough to find out what it is that you want to say and sometimes that can be completely different from what you thought you wanted to say and something might push you into it like going through the pip experience just pushed me into saying I have to give this a voice but of course there are so many different types of poetry now and it's very interesting because the poetry world is a very small world there's very little money in poetry so sort of status is everything. So everybody's always, you know, wanting this, you know, who's going to judge what, who's, who's winning what prizes, all this kind of thing that goes on. And there's a certain division in the poetry society between people who 
you've got the the sort of the old guard who you know they they protect their space and then you've got the new instagrammers and the old guard don't think that the instagrammers are any good but the instagrammers are selling thousands and thousands of poetry books whereas you know the average poetry book i think sells about 200 copies um so i'm i'm a great one to say look let's everybody just share whatever poetry we really love and I'm not going to judge it now. Of course, I have to judge it when I'm going to put it in Amber. That's a whole separate thing. But we recently had a, an open mic night in um, in Wells Next to Sea, near where I, I live in Norfolk. And yeah, we, we managed to have 40 people socially distancing, just bringing a poem, either that they'd written or a poem that they love, and getting up and reading it to each other. And you can imagine a whole variety of poems but it was the sharing of it and people being open to being able to do it. Some people were very nervous to stand in front of a microphone. Other people were more practiced. But it was the act of sharing together. And I think that poetry can does have the power to bring communities together in that. And it's a distillation of feeling that, that can bring people together. Um, that's a sort of roundabout you know, answer to your question, but I, I, I do think that there is power in poetry. Oh, 100%. I mean, the issue with all arts currently is, is where they meet up with the creative industries and how when the creative industries aren't getting thoroughly measured on their financial economy driven success and how the creative industries are only measured cash wise and how one measures one's own art and achievement mm. on that scale. So they need to be, I mean, all this thing at the moment of the government just pushing artists to to go and gentrify the far reaches. Oh, and retrain as computer programmers or yeah, something. Yeah, we're like really that. good at coding. I know, it's ridiculous. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, so, so, I mean, all of that and, and kind of it, it just all being monetized all the time and I think that's the issue with poetry is if you are doing it full time it's it's uh it's it's a tough tough business it's never paid I mean unless you're Byron you can't really afford to do it so it's well I think that I think the top you know the, the really the people who are right at the top they get a lot of judging gigs and they have academic gigs and you know they get along but um i think what worries me is there are so many creative writing programs at universities um teaching and 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 training people to to be in the creative industries and i think they need to be a bit realistic about the expectations of jobs and how how you're going to maneuver your way through this it's interesting where the state comes into all of this and and it's the same in mental health too at what point yeah. do you decide that someone is unwell or someone I, I have a friend who who lost her brother to schizophrenia and tragically and she's since retrained as a psychoanalyst and she's trying to set up a center so that people do learn to live with their voices so that it doesn't become such an alien concept and yeah. it's just part of a, a spectrum because I believe we're all on a spectrum of everything and we all cross into something somewhere. 
but Absolutely. at certain times those can go a little awry. And we need to have a beautiful, wide selection of everybody to make it varied and interesting. Wouldn't it be so. boring if we're all the same? I mean, it would be absolutely boring. Mm. And, you know, one of, actually, one of the things I really enjoy about Ambit is everyone who works on it is sort of very different and we all, we all sort of come together and, and um, produce that. Well, Ambit's yeah. amazing. I mean, Ambit's a, a, an achievement of of love and passion and that kind of wacky factor well you know i was so pleased today on twitter somebody described it as the sexiest sexiest poetry magazine in the world i mean that gave me a really good um, buzz this afternoon um but yeah ambit has been around since 1959 so um started by dr martin Bax, who's a cousin everyone gets very confused he's a cousin of my husband i'm Bryony Bax. i'm i'm but i originally was Bryony mitchell and my father was the poet adrian mitchell oh uh, i never knew that which actually when you read my work is probably not that surprising because um he did he didn't help me with this collection but before he died i he mentored me quite a lot and so that that can't help but leave a leave a trace but i never lived with my father you know, he was a wonderful poet, but pretty useless father. Uh, so he left when I was six months old. So I never, I never, I never lived with him. But um, in the last fifteen years of his life, we were very close, and um, he helped me a lot with my writing. So when did he go? About twelve years ago, and he died very suddenly. He'd had pneumonia, but he the, and he. I talked to him on the Tuesday, and he said oh, I was living in California then. He said, "Oh, I'm going to come and see you," and you know, because he used to come over and stay with us. Um, and um, then on, you know, he he had a heart attack on the Thursday and and died. So he died very suddenly. But so it was very sad. Your poetry career. So tell me about that. So yes. Yeah, so I. Um, so years and years ago, I started writing poetry. I was so, I uh, I was trained as an actor first of all. Went to drama center, you know the Stanislavski school. Got Amazing! Of, wow. Got Great. thrown out of there. Um, I was a very I was quite a wild child. My audition at drama center when I went, I had been in Paris partying with this boyfriend, and I got back and I hadn't learned the piece that I was supposed to learn. So I went in and I did my Nina from the Seagull, which I could do standing on my head, ironically. Um, and then I, I went to do whatever it was I was supposed to do. And I said, you know, I'm not going to do it. And they said, well, why are you not going to do it? I said, well, honestly, I, you know, I didn't bother learning. I was too, having too much fun in Paris with this new boyfriend. I couldn't learn it. And, and they, they let, let me in. in. They should <laughs> never have let me in, but they let me in. So it... I went to, I, so I did two years there and then I think the government paid for me to go to a secretarial school you know it was one of those because you know single parent family we got a lot of government support and then I met my husband and then we moved to the states and I lived in the states for 27 years and I did a variety of things I worked a lot with um, I worked at a place called Covenant House in New York with homeless teenagers and we started the first AIDS ward there for them and I really loved that. And then when I moved to L.A., I worked at Planned Parenthood. And I used to teach sex ed in high schools in L.A., which was fantastic. And then I ran their volunteer program. So I did lots of work with um, with youth. You know, I loved working with kids. And uh, meanwhile, my husband was do- having a very glamorous career in, you know, advertising in the film industry in L.A. and all that kind of thing. And I started writing poetry. And... 
in Los Angeles. And a friend of mine who's a poet said they were my bitchy LA poems. And they were pretty bitchy LA poems, but people loved them because they were all about the film industry, you know, the inside the inside story of the film industry. Um, and what happened with those? Did you get them published out there? Yeah, I did. Yeah. I sent them to Henry Graham, who was the poetry editor at Ambit, and I knew that Ambit liked racy stuff. And a couple of them had, you know, one of them had a mention of a clip ring or something, and I thought, oh, Martin's going to love that. So <laughs> I sent them, and lo and behold, they were published. So, you know, as always, it was a question of knowing which magazine you're you know, I would say that to people when they're sending to Ambit, know your magazine inside and out, because if you know what the editor likes, you're halfway there. And so I, I started getting poems published, and then I thought, well, I'll start writing full-time. I mean, it is a 3% slush pile. I just want to point that out about Ambit. I mean, it's hugely competitive, and it's published some of the best writers and known writers and artists Very difficult we to have. But, um, I, yeah, I, I, just to, to let the audience know now, the clip ring trick won't work with us because we've <laughs> moved anymore. away from that so um, <laughs> you'll have to read ambit and find out what we're into now so then I was writing and I I wasn't very happy writing full-time I found it very lonely I'm very much a, a person who's who's outward looking and I, I like interacting with lots of different people and I guess my kids were growing older and and so then I stopped writing um for a while went into a f I, I ran a food company uh in San Francisco called Mum's Homemade, made, you know, homemade jams and sticky toffee puddings and all that. And then when I came back to England, the Dr. Martin's son, Tim Bax, took me out and said, look, why don't you think about taking over Ambit? Because Dr. Martin has to retire. He's, he's going to be 80. And you are a poet, but you also have run businesses. So, you know, why don't you think about coming on? And I'd just come back, to, I'd just moved back to London. And I thought, well... Actually, that's quite an interesting challenge. And so I took that on. And that, my God, what a beast it was at that point because it was all paper. There were no systems. There were, it was a real struggle for the first year. But we got, it, we got it in place and we got it sort of whipped into shape. And then, of course, I'm surrounded by poetry. And then I keep thinking, gosh, I really want to write my own. I've got to work on this. And so I started just... Just taking a few workshops, you know, with Helen Ivory, and then I took a couple online in America, and just just getting back into it. So I've been writing quite a lot, and actually at the moment I'm I'm also getting pretty interested in playwriting, and I don't know whether that comes from having um, trained as an actor. I think actually dialogue is very interesting to me. I mean, I think you trained as an actor, didn't you, as well? No, I mean I was on telly when I was nineteen. Right. You see, I was terrible because I'd be on stage and I'd be thinking, oh, I wonder who's in the audience. I wonder which pub we're going to go to. And I mean, I, I just, I could do it, but I was just never into it. I should have been a, I should have been a director. I'd be much, much better. I would have been much better off doing that. But who, who knew at that point? So that's sort of my story. And, and so now I'm writing a lot more and I'm, I'm writing some plays. And Oh, that's good to know. It's such yes. a great art yes. playwriting and just the whole three-act yes. trick and learning all about yeah. understanding the story before you write it. And I think that's the, the lesson from script that yeah. teaches you a lot about how to write fiction too. Mm -hmm. I've certainly used a lot of the form of yeah. film yeah. within yeah. fiction writing to yeah. understand what it is you're trying to achieve. Yeah. yeah. 
Yeah, and definitely, I mean, when we lived in LA, of course I wrote a script. Everybody in LA writes mm. a script. But it's a very, it's actually a very good discipline, mm. um, writing one. I would recommend everybody try and write one because it does, t- it does teach you about form and it does teach you about dialogue. And it's just a good, good practice. Again, it would be terrible if we all just just turned out the same old boring poem every you know every time. You want yeah. to be surprised by people. That's why I always say at Ambit when people say, "Oh, how do I get into Ambit?" I'm like, "Surprise us!" You know, if you're writing about birds, I can guarantee you there are going to be 300 other people in the submittable pile that are writing about birds. So write about something that somebody's not writing about so so we met when you had begun on ambit in that basement gallery and i was performing down there it was an exhibition for a royal photography society related wasn't it jeff nicholson it was something to do with jeff nicholson yeah jeff nicholson your former fiction editor who selected me back in 2007 when martin was involved and pulled me from the slush um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, he and, and kind of endorsed me. So to become part of Ambit, which I always knew as a sort of psychedelic Bible, really, yeah. with Ralph Steadman and everyone yeah. in it. Yeah. I mean, that was why I wanted to be published by it, because it, it was the one that I'd seen around and well, knew. Well, it has such a history. I mean, if you think about the people, you know, William Burroughs, David Hockney, Palozzi, J.G. Ballard. I mean, it, the people who've worked on Ambit, it's amazing in the history. And we've got this great 60th anniversary edition to Ambit 237. I think you can buy it on the website. But it just... it. it is incredible to see the legacy of it. Carol Ann Duffy was an intern at Ambit. Linton Kwesi Johnson's been in that. I pick up different old editions of it and it, it's like, oh, wow, wow. I mean, all the names that have been through, I just think it's such an honour to be involved with something that will go on longer than us really yeah. because i think hopefully, that, hopefully, hopefully, yeah, yeah, yeah maybe yeah, if i do my crossed. job right <laughs> yeah. so, so, so i i emailed you when i saw you got a job going as managing editor at the beginning of yeah. lockdown and i was like oh i'm gonna need some money to get through this so yeah i emailed and i was like oh well i could probably do that and it would be quite nice to do something that I'd love to have done with Cold Lips with my own stuff, but I've never had the ability to do that with a one-man yeah. band, really. So to to have a team of editors and the kind of reputation is a is fun to play with. Um, I mean, it's weird because we don't meet very often because it's always done online. And of course, I'm in up in Norfolk. You're in you're in London. I mean, we're all over the place. And up to recently, our our poetry editor Andre Nafisahili is in LA, so we're all spread out. But it does work. It works, and it's a, a sort of collective. Um, yeah, it's a great team. I, I've I've never experienced anything like it work-wise. Yeah. The joy is that you're actually working at the grassroots level of of literature. No, it's great. Well, we I was very happy that you did apply, it, and I'm really delighted that we're working together. We've talked a lot about lament. One thing I do want to say about lament originally, I wanted to call it mental, and I just thought it was a bit harsh. <laughs> Um, and I love doing cryptic crosswords. So lament is an anagram of mental. Ooh, Ooh a little insider there. Oh, 
Oh, thank you. It's so pretty. And it's I love um, I love rough trade books. I love what they yes. produce. I find them just the right duration for an afternoon kind of just a dip out of life. Yeah. So yeah. No, it is. I mean, it's short. It's short, but it's punchy. After that interview with the best boss woman ever, Bryony Bax, that was the attendant who are Pete Astor and Ian Button with Andy Lewis on bass, who also has a show on Soho Radio. Just 
are the rhythm of my soul, the heartbeat of my life. It is through you that I come to be. I know it's never been easy. You've been scarred, devalued, dismissed, and damaged. But you somehow put the pieces back together and shine brighter than any star. Nothing could ever erase your beauty. It's not how you look, it's who you are. In the middle of a cesspool of broken dreams and pissed away promises, you bring grace to this place. Sometimes you get caught up in the ugliness around you and you sacrifice yourself for someone else. Most times it's for love, but love has been mean to you, lied and deceived you in ways you could never believe. But you're strong, and you take it on the chin. Sometimes you even take the fall, but you know how to get back up. Sister love, let it be known Without you, life is not worth living. Air is not worth breathing. There would be no music, and no one would ever dance.
to be involved in the movement um, uh, somehow. That was going, I wanted to do something to affect the change for black people in a positive way. I, I could not march with Dr. King because, well, I was young, but at the same time, I didn't have the philosophy of turning the other cheek. Um, because if I had been a part of the SCO movement, uh, the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, uh, and was um, marching with King, King had rules that, that you couldn't hit back, you couldn't, um, you couldn't uh, protect yourself, or all you could do is just stay together and hold hands and sing, we shall overcome, or whatever. And I couldn't abide, I would not have abided by that. So I, I couldn't really join that, that, that concept. But I knew that there were some changes that needed to take place in America for the betterment of black people. And I was I had some concerns about that. And uh, after they killed Dr. King on April 4th, when Dr. King was actually assassinated, I think I lost my mind. I think that's when I really pushed myself over the edge. I, I, I wanted desperately to be a part I power movement because that's what came on the heels of the killing of Dr. King. Um, and it was quite clear that asking for integration um, was causing a lot of problems and we needed to think about more in terms of separation and looking out for ourselves and being self-determined to do whatever it was necessary for us, the life that we wanted to have. And I I definitely agree with that concept, but um, I didn't know what to do uh, after King was killed, other than uh, call David Nelson, who I had met a year before, and he was writing poetry. He was telling me that he wanted to put together this collective of poets to um, serve as an example so we could move forward. And, um, and that was paramount in my head at the time. So I called David. And I said, I said, I hope you're getting this group idea together because if not, I'm going to do some crazy, I'm going to do something crazy like it had gone and start shooting people because I had to do something. I just felt that there was a certain urgency running through me that, that was calling me and I had to answer. So, um, David put my name on that list along with his name and, uh, another man who we had met named Galen Kane uh, on a list read poetry from Malcolm X's birthday celebration or commemoration not lost part say part that featured quite a number of cultural and political activities. Uh, and, and this was in nineteen sixty eight. Uh, we read poetry for Malcolm's birthday. I was very happy that I was going to be on stage in Harlem to read poetry, but at the same time, because I was raised in Queens, New York, um, actually, the section I was raised in is called uh, South Jamaica, mm -hmm. and I didn't uh, really feel confident that I was going to be able to say something appealing to a Harlem crowd, because Harlem always had this attitude of, was a certain kind of black arrogance and, and and had a certain standard that I didn't even know I could measure up to. I felt intimidated by Harlem. Harlem was always the cultural citadel of America 
black America primarily, and I guess mainly because of the Apollo being there. And then the, 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 the crowd just seemed to be a lot different in terms of attitude. And um, being raised in Queens, which is uh, a home a place where you have the homeowners and you have your front yard, your backyard, the whole, whole nine, is a bit different than being in a in the city, in an urban area where you've got buildings and, and, and sidewalks where, you know, the children jump rope and stuff like this. I mean, it's a different attitude altogether. And, um, but, so I came to Harlem, I came to Harlem about three weeks before May 19th, and um, I just started walking around and listening to what folks were saying. And I, it was actually an approach to writing poetry that I still use today. I just listen and observe the folks. And an outstanding line that kept reappearing, uh, that kept appearing again and again, was what your thing, brother, what your thing was like an expression back in the day that was kind of saying, what is your affiliation with the movement? Uh, say what you think, you know, but a lot of times God will answer, well, I'm in the Nation of Islam, or I'm a Black Panther, or I'm in the Republic of New Africa, but it had nothing to do with your occupation. It was like your affiliation with the movement. And I really wanted to investigate that further. I wanted to be a part of the movement. And so, but I wrote this poem that addressed that issue on stage as my very first poem that I did with the last poet. It was entitled, What Is Your Thing, Brother? Is it a black thing? Well, say black women and children would build a black nation. What is your thing, brother? So I just took that statement that I heard from the people and I gave it back. And simultaneously, during that time, we had the um, the Isley Brothers had a song out because much of our lives is reflected in our music. And there was a song called um, It's Your Thing. It's your thing. Do what you want to do. <laughs> and it was the popular song that that the Isley Brothers had sung. So thing had taken on some kind of a, a revolutionary pronoun, more or less. And, I, and I, I took it and I ran with it. And I did a poem. I wouldn't say it was one of my great poems, but it stated, it made all the proper statements of the day. And then, I guess with my big mouth, uh, it seemed to register and people appreciated it. And, and, and we're off and running in terms of the group, uh, idea, uh, because Kane had a poem entitled, uh, Niggas are Untogether People. And David Nelson had a poem entitled, Are You Ready Black People? on stage prepared to to make it well we want to say to make it clear that we were a group even though we didn't have the name of the last poets there were three men and we went on together as a group and performed as a group that is there was a brother on stage who was playing some drums for some african dancers and i told him to stay on the stage because i thought that we could use his uh, accompaniment just to kind of uh, give us some rhythm. I don't know what was in my head, but anyway, it, that that was we didn't have a drummer. It was three poets, but the drummer did stay on the stage. And he played something behind us while we did our poetry, and it worked out fine. It was a beautiful day. It's a beautiful gig, and we got our first actual paid gig was at uh, New York University, which came about a week later, and that was very nice. And uh, then Kane went 
finding a space in Harlem, and because he felt that that would be important for us to endure our, endear ourselves to people if we had a space where we could provide workshops and we could produce our own shows. He thought that would give us a lot more leverage in terms of just being known and doing doing the thing that we said we wanted to do. And um, David had had the idea for looking for a name, so he researched a number of poems formed by Sterling Brown, Strong and Keep On Coming. Uh, uh, then he finally came across a poem called Towards a Walk in the Sun, a poem written by a South African brother named Kale Petsy Kokosili. Uh, nobody could say his first name, so we called everybody called him Little Willie. And um, so Little Willie Kokosili had written this poem uh, talking about how horrible it was for South Africans to live under the apartheid regime. And um, his poem outlined the, the, all the, the, the ugly parts very well to the point where you could feel the anger of the poet in the poem to the point at the end he changes the lettering to to capital letters, big, bold capital letters saying, this wind you hear is the birth of memory. When the moment hatches in time's womb, there will be no art talk. The only poem you will hear will be the spear point pivoted into the punctured marrow of the villain. So we had a creed, we had our name, and, and it was, uh, at that time, everything seemed to move at light speed. I mean, it's all happened so fast, but I remember how, much, how many books I read during that period because I wanted to really be a part of the movement. And I felt, in a way, even though I'm doing poetry, I didn't know half as much as most of the guys around me because most of the cats around me were older and had read a number of books because they could actually quote pictures out of books by Franz Bernard and um, Chancellor Williams and Harold Cruz. And I wasn't even aware of the books that they were quoting. So I think for about two months, I, I read about five books just to, just to be able to have conversation with some of the... Um, people who I admired involved in the movement. And and just to make it clear that I was somebody that, you know, knew something because I really didn't know anything. I almost felt like a fraud in a sense because I hadn't um, been involved in any struggle. But now I'm at the forefront. I'm one of the members of the Vanguard because of this movement, because of the name, The Last Poets, and the fact that we had a place in Harlem. And that was our beginning. The name of our place, we called it the East Wind, and primarily because we were on the east side of the place. Plus, philosophy of the last post was, hang, it was uh, leaning towards the east as opposed to the west, uh, because the west was definitely um, what was messing us up. So we were dealing with the whole east and concepts of, of, of life. And so we had a name, uh, we had a place called the East Wind, and we called ourselves the Last Poets. And it was really a, a phenomenal time. Some great groups like Sun Ross, Arbisher, and wow. Leon Thomas, and Don and Albert Heiler, and Eddie, Eric Gale, and just some tremendous artists came through and um, shared their, their work. And, and uh, we had great parties, and it was just a, a, a real, when I look back on that period, that was a hot time. Um, Mary Baraka, his, his organization out of Newark, he had a theater company. 
they perform their plays there. Uh, then we even opened up the door for National Black Theater to exist because Barbara Ann Teer was out of space to rent from us so she could have a theater company come through and that became the first home for the National Black Theater. And now today she has a building, well she's no longer with us, but she left a building, an $8 million building on the corner of 125th and 5th Avenue. So um, that was a very, very significant period in my development in terms of my artistic development and my political development as well in terms of awareness and being connected to the culture and to the politics of my people of the day. And I've continued to ride that horse. I've been, I guess, uh, being in the last sports has given me a, a kind of a signature that I'll have until I'm finished uh, with whatever assignment that I have here on this planet. So I'm, I'm very proud of the work that the, the poets have done. And over throughout the last 50 years, there have been a total of seven poets who have graced the stage as last poets. And um, the one thing that I make a habit of doing when we're performing is to honor each one of them, give each one of them a mention from the stage, just so people will know that this group was actually developed and, and, and created by men who uh, decided to join forces poetically and speak from the same stage at the same time. And um, I just think it's honorable to mention their names because it's important that people know who they are. Yeah, absolutely. And, I mean, initially, was there much kind of crossover with the Black Panthers? Well, the Black, the Black Panthers, many of them served as our security guards. Whenever we performed, sometimes if there were Panthers in the area, they would stand on either side of the stage, almost like just as uh, Centennial Guards was. <laughs> I mean, it was because at that time, uh, there was a lot of paranoia about people who were speaking out. Do you think it was killed. paranoia a lot of it, or I mean, like you'd lost, exactly. you know? Do you think a lot of it was paranoia because you'd lost Martin Luther King, you know, Malcolm X? Right. Yes, and and so folks were rather paranoid. Right. And so we were protected. We were we were very well protected. Uh, matter of fact, uh, Umar got into the group because he was a security guard at Antioch College, uh, and uh, how he managed even uh how uh, he managed to even um, be a part of the group because he wants to frisk me in the same way the people were going at the club. And that didn't seem to fit in mind. And he said, well, if you come by my post, you got to get served. And I, and I was like trying to tell the guys, I said, I'm not going to shoot myself. Uh, you know, what are you, what are you doing? So he was a little overzealous about his role. <laughs> but, it, but it ended up being... Um, kind of comical, but it ended up giving him, a, I guess, a introduction to the group because I definitely spoke about it off, off stage, on the stage and mentioned how how crazy I thought the guy was, you know, to twist me, who, he's, who was supposed to be protected by by the mm. so-called black security guards. And uh, he thought that, I, I think he liked the attention. And I and he ended up, at the end, we spoke and I gave him the address to our place in Harlem, and when he he um, he breaks it down about how he sold his sisters, I found a way to get a ticket to come to New York City, 
would have thought of mine he was going to be in the group. So I guess he must have known something. Uh, Lil Birdie must have whispered in his ear or something because he, he truly um, made it into the group. And then I set him up to find a place to live and, and so forth and so on. And I spent, and he is, he, we're, we're like totally opposites in terms of our personalities and who we are and, and even how we do our poetry. But it, it, that opposite approach seems to be perfect for a mix of a group because we've kept the group together now for 30, over 30 years. And that's the longest stint that any members of the group have ever been together. So Umar bin Hassan, and it's very interesting, we happen to be the youngest of the group, and we happen to be now the oldest members of it in terms of uh, enduring and, and, and carrying the banner and keeping the name alive. And uh, and, and, and Baba Tinder is our drummer, so it's, and, and he also has developed into a poet. He hasn't recited any of his poetry yet and, uh, with us, but he, he is writing poetry for days, and He's doing extremely well. We're getting ready to uh, put him on in one of our CDs very shortly. But um, it's it's been an exciting journey traveling with uh, Omar because he does uh, he brings excitement. He's definitely the kind of person that uh, uh, rings the bell and causes things to happen. And I'm happy that we have stuck together this long and that we've been able to accomplish as much as we have because it's been quite a lot. And and I'm very, very proud of the work that we've done. My sons are here organized. They've organized a petition to get people to sign, to get the block where we were, where the East One was located, so I, to get our name on, one of the, on, on that particular corner. I'm not... You know, I'm not really crazy about all that stuff because I'm still working. <laughs> it's just like what Bill referred to me as a legend. I have a sculpture of you, yeah. Digesting all that stuff. Because I'm I'm really, as far as I'm concerned, I'm I'm doing my assignment. You know, we all give everybody mm-hmm. that's here as an assignment, has something to do. Mm-hmm. And I just feel like I'm I'm trying to fulfill my my assignment. I'm trying to do my part. And I appreciate being appreciated. I don't just appreciate it, but it just kind of sometimes it makes me feel weird because uh, I'm I'm doing this, and I want I want no question. I definitely want to be appreciated. I want to be loved. All those good things, but for some odd reason, I have a difficult time accepting accepting it sometimes um, because. Um, you know, people will say things to me like, you know, you changed my life, you know, I first heard you, and all that. And I don't know what to say other than the fact that, well, you changed mine too, because if it wasn't for you, I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing. You know, you bought my albums, you, you put me up in, in, in a place in your mind that I was doing something that was special, and it gave me some special feelings about doing it again and trying to be consistent as I possibly could be in terms of what I do on stage and off stage as well. And so, I mean, I I enjoy the love and the attention and all that stuff, but uh, I could probably, I guess there's a big part of me that could do without it as well because I really enjoy doing what I do. So tell me about your actual process in terms of writing then. How do you do it? You know, because we have all this difference my, between... My, my process of writing? Yeah, yeah. We have all the, you know, the page poetry, the lyric, the snottery between both styles and how you do it. Yeah. 
Well, well, my 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 process is like um, you know, if I have a theme, of an idea for something that I want to develop poetically, I just if I just have a theme of something important that's happening in the world that I think I should address, um, I'll sit down, and I'm always thinking poetry because. I know poetry is a juicy part of language. Uh, and, and you know, I, I tell people poetry is like uh, a spice that you keep in your cabinet right next to the cayenne pepper and the, and, and the salt. You know, like you might, uh, you know, uh, write something, but if you don't sprinkle some poetry on it, it's really not going to fly. You know, poetry gives it that certain kind of flavor that makes people appreciate reading or uh, listening to what you're saying. Um, and what I mean by that is poetry will take words and give you some image, create some words to conjure up imagery um, by touching your, one of your senses, a sense of taste, touch, sound, sight, or smell. And, and that always connects with the human being greater. And I, so when I'm writing, I, I want to, always try to make a connection that's going to be some, uh, I'm, I'm going to make, I'm going to say something hopefully that will be clear and that you can understand and appreciate and feel. And those are key ingredients. So whatever subject I'm dealing with, I want you to be able to appreciate and feel what I'm saying. And, um, and so uh, my process is in the morning after I've, um, Thank God for waking up and doing all, taking a shower and all that stuff. It's uh, and again, I go into my study and I sit there with my pen and my tape. And uh, like right now, I'm working on a novel, so oh, cool. that's something. I'm, I'm just what's that about? It's about the, it's actually the battle between the spiritual world and the physical world lives. <laughs> um, always in the balance of whether that we're going to be physical or we're going to be spiritual. I have access to a publishing company. Um, I just publish a book of short stories. Uh, there's a publishing company I'm connected to called, it's a little black company called Two Leaf Press. Oh. And, and so we are, and now we're connected with Chicago Press. Mm-hmm. So our distribution is going to be much bigger than it was. Excellent. The, young, mm-hmm. the young lady who is in charge, who is a publisher, is an, she, she does excellent, excellent work. The only problem is that she's always poor. And I've <laughs> spent so much money and just trying to help her get through the hard times until I can actually probably say that I, I have a great investment in her company. But I would, you know, and she's, and I've done a number of things like, uh, my first book, my first book of my collected poems was done by her. She does tremendous work, and that's one reason why she's back. And I want to always want to support my people, and I always appreciate anyone who has a good work ethic. And Gabrielle has a very good work ethic, uh, and um, and she she's always given me extra stuff to do. But the extra stuff she has for me to do is stuff that I need to do. And um, and, it, and, it, and it works out, even though I might complain about it. For example, when we did my first book of poetry, uh, it's called Branches of the Tree of Life, and you get it on Amazon or whatever. And, um, and the, 
she called me up, uh, told me, says, you know, I've looked on, online, I've read biographies of you and everything, but none of that stuff works for me. She says, I know you, and I think you need to do a brand new biography for the book. And I said, Gabrielle, I mean, I just gave you a gang of poems and stuff. I mean, golly, but, I mean, that's just a lot of books that's not be doing. Do you want this to be right? I want this to be right. And so she would, you know, we'd go through whatever conflict. I didn't want to go to work. So I know that if I'm trying to do something quick, fast, in a hurry, she's going to notice it and going to ask me to do it again. So I just took my time and I wrote a real, um, I, I guess it was a, a decent biography to the point where I've had a lot of people call me and say, man, I haven't gotten past the purpose, man. Wow, your life has really been something exciting. So but even before they get to the poetry, you're reading about my life story and my life has been a, a myriad of adventures that uh, a lot of people will see you know, excited about. And um, so I, I, I really put my foot into the into the biography and she appreciated that. And then when we did the um, the book of short stories, she called me up after I sent her, I think, 13 short stories. She says, aren't you a member of the last poets? And I said, of course, you know that. She says, well, where's the essay? And I said, oh my God. Oh, boy, I said, you know what, every time I send you something, you always get back in touch with me to tell me that there's more to be done. I mean, this is crazy. And But she's just, I, I refer to her as my slave driver because she's constantly putting more work on my plate. But then I, I had to do that. And then she, then she says, you know, most of the short stories, Judy is there because all the short stories for the most part were done when my lady, who passed away about four years ago, mm-hmm. um, she um, was yeah. one of the characters that that um, was with me when most of those stories were done. And I have her in there, and I mention her. I mention how we made it through the swamps of Costa Rica and how we did this and how we went from Spain to North Africa. And there were a bunch of wonderful things that transpired, and that some were even initiated by her Everything basically because she's the one that designed all the trips because <laughs> she's a map reader. And so, uh, Gabrielle says, you know, you mentioned Judy in almost every single short story. And I just don't understand. Says the audience needs to know who she is, who she was, and what she was to you. So I had to go in on that and do a whole piece called The Lady, the lady of My Life mm-hmm. because she truly was the lady of my life. And I would in on that as well. <laughs> to the point when this past weekend I was in North Carolina and my ex-wife, um, the mother of my son, who is a lawyer, I stayed with her. She picked me up from the airport and I stayed with her because I had a, a lecture gig at uh, North Carolina Central University. She took me to the, to the gig and I stayed with her the whole weekend that I was there. And she also, I gave her the book of short stories, I autographed and gave it to her. She read it in one night, the whole book. She says, wow, I love your stories. Oh my gosh, the story's great. And I was happy to hear that. Because every time you knows you personally, they appreciate your work. It stands up, it stands up a little bit more sometimes. And then she 
says, and I also understand what the relationship was between you and Judy. She was truly your soulmate. Yeah. She says, that was beautiful what yeah. you said about her because everything that I have, that I have hold dear to my life, you know, and that was the woman who raised me who actually was not my biological mother, but she's my mother, my mother. And she had this fabulous flower garden, which was something that she was, that was very precious to her because she loved flowers. And I considered Judy like that. And she had the way she had flowers arranged for along the edges and the, there was um, the gardenia bushes on the left side and the rose bushes up against the garage. But in the back, overlooking all of this, the flowers was the um, the sunflowers. And so I referred to Judy as a sunflower because she was like that to me in my life, overlooking my overlooking everything for me, and 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 always giving me space to 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 do whatever. I, I had to do, one of the things she'd always say is that I never want to get in the way of you and your fans. And she never was. Like, I could be doing a performance someplace and you might not even know I had a lady because she's not going to be standing right next to me all the time because she knows that I'm going to be getting selfies with people who want to get selfies and I'm going to be talking to this person and autographing this. And she didn't want to come off like a woman to intimidate other women he's with me, that type of behavior. She didn't have that kind of vibe. She was a very secure person and uh, and she gave me space. And for that is another reason why I loved her as much as I did. So, I mean, like with the world generally now, I mean, you're we're living in kind of times that are quite hard to ignore sometimes. And do you see, just as an older statesman, do you see it getting worse? Do you see it getting better? I mean, you've been at the front line of radical stuff, but I mean, how do you see the world currently? Oh, well, currently, we're in a real, um, we're, we're going through some changes. I mean, it's almost like, you know, people aren't very much different than the weather. You know, tomorrow, climate change, there is a climate change within the way in which people are dealing with each other today. Sure. And and I, as as well as the actual climate itself, I mean, we, you know, we always want to put ourselves above everything. And we're just elements, just like the sun and the rain, the wind and the snow and all that stuff. And we just happen to be able to, to talk and, and rationalize. And and not saying that these elements can't. They may have a way of communicating as well, but we don't know that. The fact is that I see the world changing in many, many ways, and those changes are constant because that's the only thing constant on the planet. And I think that this is a very pivotal time in the life of of, of human beings in terms of how we view each other, uh, how we see each other from every aspect. I think there is a a certain human, uh, uh, a call for the for the human element to step up and and be more human towards each other, and, and, and if we have that, we're going to have other we're going to have people hurting as well. I mean, because the country itself is an uh, immature country, and we're still groping for uh, identity in terms of who we are in the world and and how much we mean to the world. America has been setting the bar, raising the bar for a lot of things to take place on this planet 
for, for a while there in the center of that raising of the bar. And just about everything that's being done, especially when it comes to the world of entertainment, sports, and then when it comes to science as well. I mean, when it comes to science, we've, we've had a lot to do with a lot of that. Uh, um, I think about you know, the, the fact that there's this big clock in London called the Big Ben. A lot of folks have no idea that that's saying after Benjamin Back. I mean, he was a black man. I mean, it's just, just there's so many things that we have contributed towards that we don't get credit for because the powers that be don't really echo that. But now there's this great movement to integrate everybody with everybody. I mean, um, they're selling integration like it's going out of style, like it's the latest game in town. If you're a white girl, get a black guy. If you're a black guy, get a white girl. I mean, it's like, it's, it's, it's really just, it's, it seems to be strange, but it is the way we're going. We're coming to a point where we're realizing more and more that we all need each other badly. And, and this whole racial divide has got to cease. But at the same time, we're going to find people who are racially caught up to the point where they just can't let go. Um, the, the class systems have got to cease. But then again, we're going to find a lot of folks that don't want to get rid of stuff that want to maintain their wealth and not share it. And that's going to be more apparent as time goes on. I see some changes. I see some changes for the better, but not the heartache and heartbreak, not without pain and, and, and misfortune and tragedy. But we're in a process where there's changes that are taking place in this world as we speak the changes are going on. In a good way, in a bad way, in both. In a good way, I think, ultimately, but you can be caught up in the zone of the bad at any given moment, and we have to overcome that. But I do feel, ultimately, it's all going to be all right. It's all going to work <laughs> out. Hell you for that. Let's hope so, right? Um, and tell me, just that, like your recording process, I mean, I was listening back to, you know, Stone Cold Classics, you know, like your Acid House Sense hip-hop production with There Was a Man that kind of tributes Martin Luther King. And I know that from, you know, it sounds very Acid House and very hip-hop. And like your production, how's that changed? I mean, from just having guys playing drums on stage and your recent stuff with Prince Fatty that was what introduced me to speaking to you today. Kind of how, how did, how's your production method changed? Or has it? <laughs> well, well, in this particular CD, we're talking about understanding what black is. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, that, what makes that, uh, sort of, prior to the fact that we hooked up with reggae music, and in that regard, this is, this is the first album we've ever done where the last poets are reciting poetry over some reggae music. Um, and that's, uh, I think, is a marriage that probably should have been done some years ago because reggae music has always been seen as rebel music and we've always been rebel poets. Sure, yeah. uh, you would think that would be a, a, a match made in heaven. <laughs> but, um, okay, but um, it's not the case. So um, we just got that done, and it's um, it, it's it's good. It's it's a wonderful idea. 
Um, matter of fact, I was wondering why Understand Black was sought out as the uh, title track for the CD. Um, and then um, I went back and I had to learn it by heart, of course, to do a video of it. And um, and I realized it's, it's a very good piece because it kind of encompasses what I was just telling you about the changes of the world. I mean, um, we, you know, everything comes from black. I mean, and no matter what you are, who you are, where you're, where you're from, we all come from black in terms of just the concept of of the beginning. I mean, black is a source from which all things come, as I say in the first line of the poem. And that's, that's the bottom line. And black is not a color. It's not a complexion. You know, we've attributed to a particular race of people, but anybody can... And it's and it's not negative. I mean, you know, it has a positive, has much more positive stuff attached than it does negativity. But because uh, we've made black and white political entities, mm-hmm. uh, it's gotten a lot of negative press and a lot of negative promotion, and mm-hmm. that's unfortunate. Yeah, and it gets sensitive, it, doesn't it? You know, it's like this whole thing. Huh? It gets sensitive. That whole energy. Yeah. You know, particularly now kind of dangerous point at the moment with the internet siphoning us off into well, demographics. Yeah, well, see, that's, 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 that's doing... The mean machine is definitely taking a, um, a toll on, on a lot of people. A lot of people are depending upon the machine to give them information and to live for them, and the machine doesn't have that kind of passion, so sure, it, yeah. it's just, you know, that's, that, that's the problem that yeah. we have to overcome. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. But um, I, I, I'm, I'm keeping faith in, 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 in humankind, and I do. I have a lot of belief and faith in the human element and the humankind. I, I believe that people are basically good, and that mm. uh, eventually good will come, will, will prevail. Mm. Yeah, but as long as we've got some decent people who have some compassion and understanding, um, we can tenderize it a bit, you know? The world has changed. America's a terrorist. Killing the natives of the land. Killing and stealing has always been a part of America's master plan.
song and dance and making you laugh are family members. Understand what black is, the breath you breathe, the sweat on your brow, the cheers and the tears balancing the world on your head. Faith is the glue that holds us all together. This is your blackness, not some horror story of lost souls drifting into the land of perversion. Black as love is a light shining on a path leading to the sun or caressed in the bosom of the moon. Understand what black is.
I hope you enjoyed that really terrible recording with Abby had done Oh Wally it was done for print so yeah apologies if you suffered listening to his wise words but I thought we'd better to share them than not this backing track is created by Gilda Ray my name is Kirsty Allison. This has been the Ambit Show for Soho Radio, and I hope to see you soon. Bye.